Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for December 7th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do on this pristine late fall morning? Yeah, it's a little drab out, but what we're going to do, no matter what the weather is, is that we are going to consider some topics, taking and drawing in information from a variety of vantage points, doing our best to keep everything in good faith and make sure that we are actually debating ideas and not people, doing our best to keep ourselves and our loyal listeners adequately informed. You know, some people just argue against the straw man, but what's the point? They're made of straw. Uh, They're so flammable. Yeah, you could. Yeah, it's real easy to burn the straw man, um, but that's uh, not what we're here to do expressly. Even though we may accidentally do it, because holy shit, we're only human, and uh, we are not infallible. We don't know everything. And we'll probably make some mistakes, some say some things that aren't even our true values. But, you know, it happens sometimes. We're all hypocrites and we're all not on the ivory tower. Uh, we hope to we hope to be humble, humble, humble. But anyway, hey, 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 Evan. Yes, Joe. What, what do you want to talk about today? Well, I think that today is going to be a bit of a viewer mailbag grab bag. Lots of bags going on. Bag. And we're going we're gonna to look at an email from loyal listener Mike M. Who says, hey AI, this past MLB and NBA season, athletes put their lives in potential harm to play during this pandemic. During the last game of the World Series, Justin Turner was escorted out together the club, oh, to the clubhouse because he tested positive and came back on the field to celebrate with his teammates... Uh, because they won the championship. After Major League Baseball conducted an investigation and looked at the actions of Justin Turner, they tried to shame Turner on his action. Later, pitcher Joe Kelly, no relation to my uncle Joe Kelly, came to Turner's defense to say that the MLB bubble was BS. The Dallas Golf Resort the MLB had the players staying in was not closed to the public, and Kelly stated that golfers many times didn't follow the directions and crossed off the roped barriers to continue the golf game. With the push for the new season in the NBA and the MLB later in the spring, what should the NBA and MLB do to ensure the safety of the bubble? And should MLB take more accountability for putting these teams in jeopardy? So, Joe, I think what we have here is a tension between the institutional responsibility of Major League Baseball and the individual responsibility of players like Justin Turner. What, what's your first take on this? Well, so Evan, as a shocker to everybody, I don't follow a whole lot of sports, so I don't know. But I do know about institutions and making rules and making effective things. And my... Uh, take on this just from what's said on the email is that if you really want something to go well you know if you want a desired outcome i.e this one being um players not having uh contact with people outside of the mlb or the nba then you should set up a rule structure or parameters for it in which it doesn't necessi necess necessitate 
individual, uh, you know, individual responsibility above just like whatever base level or uh, the responsibility of outside others to act accordingly. Like, I don't know if you decided to put the MLB bubble in the middle of a school cafeteria and get mad when kids try to come up and sit at the tables that the MLB players are at, um, <laughs> you would be, people would be like, well, why would you put it there to begin with? So like, <laughs> I know, it, I don't know the specifics of the golf course thing, but it's like, Hey, if you set up an area for, um, you know, set up your area for MLB players to be. And it's also in an area that is adjacent to a sport where people can just hit their ball anywhere and they're supposed to go and get it whenever they, you know, hit it anywhere, then shocking people will probably do that at the expense of whatever thing that they're not buying into. Yeah, I think that's a good point that there is a certain level of naivete on the part of Major League Baseball for expecting their meager piecemeal restrictions to be enough. Of course, the MLB, unlike the NBA, did not institute a strict bubble during the regular season and only during the later stages of the postseason did they adopt it. But that does not necessarily excuse them. I think that I'm kind of on two minds overall of where the blame falls, because on the one hand, it is sort of inherently unsafe to be playing any sports right now. Um, The NFL is experiencing outbreaks on a weekly basis. There was a point where the Ravens, the Baltimore Ravens team experienced 10 consecutive days of positive testing and had their game pushed from the Thursday night Thanksgiving slot all the way to this previous Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And during that Wednesday game, Commissioner Roger Goodell came onto the broadcast to say that the protocols were working as they were intended, which is utter madness. You can't say that 10 consecutive days of positive testing is how well, Evan, this was intended to work. Evan, the rescheduling protocol is working as intended. It well, was rescheduled <laughs> to the letter. <laughs> I mean, it almost wasn't though, because the part of the part of the process was that they had to close down the Ravens facility, and they had originally scheduled the game for Tuesday, but the facility was closed as of Monday, which meant that the players couldn't practice. And so without giving that extra day of that Tuesday to get some semblance of better practice, the players were going to strike and they weren't even going to play on that Tuesday. And then even with that extra day, there were still huge concerns of player safety because they weren't able to use the entirety of the team facilities leading up to game day. And so Robert Griffin III pulled a hamstring. He's one of the best conditioned athletes on the planet. And he's on IR now with a hamstring injury, which only comes from not basically having your, your muscles loosened enough due to having a full week of practice. So... Yeah, I think that there's a lot of these professional sports leagues that are just lying to themselves about how safe it actually is. In the NFL, 31 out of 32 teams have had 
COVID positivities after the onboarding process. Shout out to the Seattle Seahawks for remaining pure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just seems like I, I get where Michael is coming from because on some level, professional sports leagues, at least the MLB and the NFL, because I think the NBA has done a better job of this, but at least the MLB and the NFL have decided that they are going to put maintaining league profits to a degree above stopping the spread of COVID, even among their own employees. And it's bullshit to claim otherwise. So I get that, especially when you consider that there have been now two NFL players, Reichwell Armstead of the Jaguars and Tommy Sweeney of the Bills, who have had their seasons ended due to COVID complications. Reichwell Armstead has required multiple hospitalizations. Tommy Sweeney is now dealing with an enlarged heart due to the lingering effects of the disease on his body or the virus on his body. And the, these are elite athletes mm-hmm. who are just seeing their bodies destroyed by this virus. And so to put that responsibility on the athletes does seem a little more than a little bit disingenuous. But here's kind of the, the flip side is that I don't think that it takes institutional responsibility to say, don't go party with your friends when you just fucking tested positive Justin Turner. Yeah. I mean that regardless. I mean, I just want to know how he got that far. Like, yeah, he must've like snuck out. I don't know. Maybe Mike can, uh, can, Email us again and and give us a little bit more detail, but like, come on. Yeah, it's probably MLB's fault for putting Justin Turner in a situation to contract COVID, but they did not make him go back out there and potentially spread the virus further. So sorry, Mike, I got to say you raise valid points about the institutional responsibility of professional sports leagues. Justin Turner's still an asshole. Well, and it just... What we've been learning through this virus is that half measures are often not enough and can even make the situation worse. Like, you know, I'm thinking there's a lot of things, you know, there's a lot of uh, things that people want in this world to try and affect a little bit of change. And, you know, if you do a half measure And, you know, some of the status quo stays, you know, it's not like a big, horrible deal. Like, you know, if you have a summer camp and you don't want kids to bring in outside candy, you make a rule that says don't bring in outside candy. But then, you know, most likely kids are still going to bring outside candy. But, you know, it's not the end of the world. There's enough plot of the movie heavyweights. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, I've watched that movie many times in Disney (laughs) Channel. But anyway. So, but if your if your goal is to keep an infectious disease away from the ranks of your people, you you can't just have a simple rule of don't be stupid. Like it, it needs to be more involved in that. Um, and it, you know, and it's just it seems like more and more is that if you do the half measure, people will take that as a sign of safety and be more flagrant or frivolous or, you know, just, I wish there were more 
non-judgmental versions of those words that could be used because it well, you know, just it, less cautious how, how about I mean, that they're yeah. just less cautious i mean you know to use the economist term it's 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 a moral hazard where you know you kind of give people the sense that they're more safe than they actually are so they end up taking greater risks um which well that's the big the big seatbelt debate right you know yeah. that there's people who who say and and with some degree of validity that after we instituted seatbelts, people began driving more recklessly because they th- thought the cars were safer. And so the negative effects of the reckless driving outweighed the safety of the innovation of the seatbelt. Right. Um, so it doesn't mean you shouldn't wear your seatbelt. You, you have to wear right, your seatbelt. Right. Yeah. But. You know, it, it's kind of the two different schools of thought. Like the NBA took this, you know, very strict stance towards how they were going to do their bubble for the players. And, you know, I'm not super up on the NBA, but from what I can gather, it seems to have worked. Like it was, you know, if your express purpose is to make sure that the athletes in your sports league continue to be without the virus in order so that they can keep playing a choice that you allow the players to make on their own of whether they want to keep playing or not, then it seems like the NBA did it. Like, did it seem a little crazy when, like, I don't know, I forget, one, like, player ordered uh, DoorDash or something to the hotel and put it on Twitter and, like... And got like suspended for a few days. Yeah, it did seem a little ridiculous. But, you know, if you didn't do that, then all of a sudden all the players are getting DoorDash and then all of a sudden, you know, COVID sneaks in. Um, and, you know, that could, and then then the whole trade off isn't worth it anymore for the players. Like, it's like, oh, I'm going to do this thing where I'm making this huge sacrifice of being away from my family and you know, all this kind of stuff. And in the end, like there are just enough half of a percent of assholes who break it and, you know, end up bringing COVID in, like then it just ends up not being worth it for anybody. So, yeah. And it does kind of seem like you were talking about that these half measures are just not making sense. It's like, yeah, we're going to have all these protocols, but then, you know, some players are just going to choose not to wear masks. And and I want to use this as an opportunity to segue into almost an even funnier story that you probably, since you're not following the NFL really this year, Joe, you might not have heard of, but I think it's really fucking hilarious. Um, so last week, Jeff Driscoll, the practice squad quarterback for the Denver Broncos, tested positive for COVID-19. And it was revealed that... In the quarterback meeting rooms, no one had been wearing a mask. And so by NFL rules, this meant that starting quarterback Drew Locke and the only other backups on the roster, Brett Ripien and Blake Bortles, were all ineligible to play in the Broncos game against the New Orleans Saints. (laughs) It is NFL policy not to postpone games for competitive balance, which means that they did not 
cancel or postpone that Broncos Saints game. And the Broncos had to elevate a practice squad wide receiver who had played quarterback in college (laughs) to start at quarterback for their game against the top seeded Saints. And how did it go? Oh, it went so poorly. The guy, and, and you know, to his credit, he was thrown into the fire and he hadn't played quarterback since college and his second position was wide receiver. And remember, he wasn't even considered to be a good enough wide receiver to be on the active roster. Right. So this poor <laughs> guy gets thrown in. He attempted nine passes. He completed one of them and also through two interceptions. He completed more passes to the other team than to his Jeez. own team. And the Broncos were absolutely destroyed. They did not get shut out, though. A long Brandon McManus field goal gave them three points, but it was just about the least competitive game in modern NFL history. Wait, was so did that guy play quarterback the entire game? Yeah, so they did some packages where they did what's called a wildcat formation so they line up a running back in the quarterback spot and then he just Mm -hmm. runs it um and they tried to make sure to call a lot of run plays because yes you're right it is strange that he only threw nine passes in a game but denver basically said we 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 can't try to do any more than that it's not working okay I was like, wow, like, did he, did they, did he do so bad that they called up some even worse option (laughs) that they hadn't considered before? Well, Joe, this is the thing. He was actually their second choice. Their original pitch, they uh, petitioned the NFL to let their offensive quality control coach start at quarterback because he knew the (laughs) offense and he had played quarterback in college and they were like in practice they were having their coach play quarterback but the NFL didn't want to set a precedent about trying to have people expand their rosters through creating quote-unquote coaching positions so they they kept up this firewall between coaches and active players but yeah that was their pitch is like you know fuck it just put put coach in there this 35 year old guy who hasn't played football in 15 years coach yes me i'm going in okay coach <laughs> put me in me <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, oh man that's a that's a good story i love i love stuff like that um, oh yeah just that, that Broncos game is just such an unmitigated and unprecedented shit show. And yeah, there's a lot of layers to it. So I'm glad I'm glad you got a kick out of it. I think oh, it's yeah. funny. Oh, it's um, sorry, sorry to Broncos fans. You guys got annihilated. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, I, I, and, and Michael's email also brings up the point that the NBA is restarting again very soon. And the, and the MLB plans to start on time. And it just seems kind of ridiculous. You know, we took such precautions at the outset of this, which actually made a lot of sense. And then we tamped down cases and now we just don't care anymore. (laughs) And we're going to be much less cautious when the disease is actually spreading much more rapidly. And, you know, there's there's good things. The, The vaccine is definitely on the horizon and we have more effective treatments now that reduce the mortality and reduce the symptoms. But even on the margins, a greater spread of the disease means more people are going to die than they would have to. And I don't take that lightly. Even if it's a small percentage, even if most people survive and things are getting better, it just seems pretty callous that we have a, we as a society have decided that we're still going to make choices that will result in excess death. Well, again, it's like 
the the half measures and hoping that individuals will go above and beyond their just kind of base level, you know, I mean, I'll say rat brain, but you know, that's, you know, we, we all live according to our rat brain, just doing our little thing and going along and living life. But it's like people, we had a full year of a lot of half measures and it made people fatigued to those because a good amount of the time it was that the price of compliance is greater than like perceived individual good or even collective good. And, you know, people just ended up getting tired of it. Like the craziest, you know, one of the crazier things to me is that like, you know, over this whole time, bars and restaurants have continued to be open. Now, I know it's yeah. a very, I understand the balancing act of why that was where, <clears throat> you know, you want to balance public health, but because there was no uh, direct aid offered to bars and restaurants to essentially incentivize them to stay closed, they they needed to open to remain viable as businesses and, you know, uh, you know, municipalities and states needed the tax revenue from those transactions to continue to, you know, have money as a government. So I understand why the trade-offs were made to make sure that bars and restaurants could stay open. But from a virus perspective, it, it didn't really ever make any sense. Like you would, show up to a restaurant and then like you would have to wear your mask when you're walking between tables but then when you get to Sit your at table, the table yeah you you could take it off like i i get like it's trying to do more than zero but it's one of those places where a half measure just feels like well what's the point of it at all if we're going to do this And we found that even in the light of, you know, the deadly coronavirus, that people are still very willing to go out to bars and restaurants. I mean, mostly because it's a good thing. But like, you know, even here in uh, the section of Illinois that I'm at, they have uh, issued a an order that bars and restaurants need to be closed. But some bars and restaurants are just ignoring that. And there have been like law enforcement officials and mayors and stuff who are saying, hey, we're not going to enforce the the shutdown. And it, it it's there are it, this is the land of the half measures where if you do a half measure, you don't get enough buy in that it's actually effective. And if you don't do the necessary things to incentivize the measures to begin with, then people are going to defy them. Yeah, there's this, uh, this is kind of related, you sparked a thought in me, because you do have to give people some sense that their sacrifice will be effective, that it will be rewarded through the positive outcomes that we want, because I think, man, I've been so restrictive that I haven't gone to the theater to see a movie in eight months, which is like my main thing, Right. and and yet, for all that sacrifice, it, it really didn't affect the community spread of COVID at all. So, um, yeah, it is frustrating. And I do think 
um, a big thing is, as you mentioned, there's been no political action to generate a stimulus that will incentivize positive public health decisions. Yeah. Well, and it's also like now now we even know that the vaccine is on the horizon, but it's like. I don't know. It it almost feels like an escalation of war when peace talks are beginning. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it's, uh, I mean, it should be that, you know, maybe this would, you know, the, the state of things would be more justifiable if it, you know, these first rounds of vaccines came out and the test results netted that they were only 5% effective. Or something like that. And people would be like, well, this this is just kind of how we're living with it. And I don't I don't agree with that to begin with, but it's more understandable under those situations. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, it looks like we could be towards the end of it. But, you know, we're we're getting more complacent. So all these people who are, you know, getting sick before. Um, before the uh, vaccine are coming, you know, it's it's almost senseless. Like, why don't we, you know, I remember this was like a duality in like the presidential, you know, the second presidential debate where, you know, I, I, I didn't agree with anything Donald Trump said, but it was just like this weird duality of this is just how we just have to live with it. We're not we're not going to. You know, we're not going to make any meaningful difference by not living our lives through this. And then also saying the vaccine is two weeks away. (laughs) Like the duality of saying this is just something we're going to have to live with for forever and it's all going to be over tomorrow. Like and if it's all going to be over soon, we should hopefully be taking the most measures, you know. Yeah. This is one of those things you're not actually across the line until you're across the line. But then, you know, as I talk about this, I also know that I am a hypocrite. Like I have, you know, not the last few weeks, but I've like gone out to bars and restaurants. I saw family. Uh, Some family came in for Thanksgiving. Um, You know, I went out. I went and hung out at a friend's house the other night, you know. These things that you're not supposed to do, but, you know, it's it's hard to not do. And there just isn't a whole lot to incentivize not doing it. Um, so I want to have a note on hypocrisy here because it's something that I've been thinking about. And it's definitely a tangent. But what, what else is this show for, if not tangents? Tangents. I think hypocrisy is something that we need to be extraordinarily critical of in our elected officials because otherwise there's just no consequences to what they say and they can just infinitely enrich themselves and otherwise we can't really address corruption without trying to hold hypocritical leaders accountable. But I think hypocrisy is something we need to be more forgiving of interpersonally. I think that everyone has ways in which their words and actions don't match And for just people who you care about, that's just part of being human. And I think we should be more forgiving when there is 
you know, not not a power gradient at play, but just people in your life who say or do something hypocritical, accept it as their humanity and, and forgive them. Well, and it's all there are different shades of hypocrisy. Like, um, I don't know, one that I I always think about is how uh, Republicans have been in court trying to over throw the entire of the Affordable Care Act and then also campaigning on saying that they would never do something to take away people's health care and they're mm-hmm. the true protectors of pre-existing conditions. But then, you know, there's like the softer hypocrisies where for like one argument you use this like frame of reference, but then in a different argument, you don't want to use the same frame of reference and your new frame kind of goes against the old frame. And it's like, well, I mean, that's kind of hypocrisy, but it's different sections and it's been seven years. And (laughs) I don't know if it necessarily holds water that they're a raging hypocrite right this moment. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, we're all figuring this out, right? Very few of us have complete and unwavering ideological consistency across all of the viewpoints we hold. And to demand otherwise, I think, is unrealistic. And I mean, and, and things change. Like, I, you know, on this show, I, I have been a hypocrite where I remember at the early parts of the Democratic primary, I was like anybody but Joe Biden. <laughs> And then towards the end, I, I became like, I, you know, I bought into it, um, becoming the person in most of the people I knew who was most accepting of his candidacy. And, you know, there was, you know, some changes in circumstances and, you know, new ways of looking at things that changed me. It didn't change the fact that I still believe in you know, the policy proposals or, you know, the, the higher level good that is aspired to from, you know, those individual policy positions, but the individual policy positions are only a, a manifestation of a belief for a greater good and, you know, all the, all this other stuff. But, you know, I, I full well understand that I am, a, you know, a hypocrite and almost everybody is in, at some point and well also there's a difference between hypocrisy and having your thinking evolve on a subject right as i recall your your concern was that joe biden would just be the guy that everyone fell in line to support and he wouldn't be exciting enough to generate turnout and then once there was data from the primaries to assuage some of those fears then you adjusted to the new data and adopted a new viewpoint so yeah i i think that there's there's a distinction there yeah um, there is but i i you know from uh just a kind of base level it can look like hypocrisy yeah. um and you know that's it happens it happens you know i um You know, I see this all the time where people will kind of, well, there there are good faith versions and bad faith versions where, you know, if there's someone who online who's like a commentator, but, you know, some people are known for actually uh, being open to new positions and other people have been steadfast 
And, you know, sometimes hypocrisy will be thrown at the people who are more open-ended or, you know, being able to change their opinions. And then, but then, you know, they'll get a little bit of a pass because they're more open-ended. But then, you know, charges of hypocrisy will be charged at people who are more closed in their, you know, thinking over time and then be like, well, I'm going to use the same standard as was for them. (laughs) So, but anyway, 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 we're we're all hypocrites. Let's have a, a, let's have a song and dance about we're all hypocrites. We are hypocrites. Yeah. You know, it's Um, to the tune of life is a fucked up mess. From Big Mouth, which is coming up later. Don't you worry, everyone. Ah, ho ho. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think we've done a good a good uh, assessment of the myriad issues that are surrounding sports and COVID, personal and institutional responsibility. Um, I, I'm I'm happy with this. If you are, I'm happy too. Yeah. So to sum up. Collective action is definitely important and perhaps even superordinate to individual action, but uh, that doesn't excuse Justin Turner in my book. Especially in things where individuals' actions can have greater harm to others greater than harm to themselves. Yes. Stuff like drunk driving. But anyway. Yes. So, Joe, um, Evan. It's, it is it, it is more of a viewer mailbag grab bag, so it's not like you spontaneously decided to talk about this. But what do you want to talk about to, to I, stick to our old format? I, I want to talk about a question that our dear listener Alex has brought to the forefront. Um, let me bring up the text real quick um, because it's pretty great. It very succinctly asks, can you guys cover what section 230 is and does because I'm too lazy to Google it and prefer my information delivered through the voices of my friends? K, thanks. Bye. Which I, <laughs> I think is a great way to ask a question. Um, and, you know, it really gets to the meat of the matter of what is section 230? Now, if you have vaguely heard any, well, I don't even think it's really big in the, the quote, the discourse TM. Um, Not in the normie discourse, yeah. No, no. And not even like cool liberal discourse. I think it's all been hashed out and there's like a position on it. So nobody like talks about it. But it's. I I just want to say that for the record, it has been true this year, Joe, that I have pitched you a list of topics that has included section 230. So I. I, uh, I've been I've been on this for a little bit. You're on it. All right. I'm, I'm glad I don't remember that. Or <laughs> I'm sad. I don't know. I'm a hypocrite. Um, <laughs> so what is Section 230? And what is this even in reference to? So there has been lots of talk of Internet companies. Lots of people aren't happy at internet companies because of their own reasons. But Section 230 is this provision within the, uh, I believe it's the Internet Decency Act. I think it was somewhere in the early 90s. So the specifics of it is that in 1996, there was a bill passed called the Telecommunications Act of 1996, 
Within this, there was a provision, Title V, which is referred to as the Communications Decency Act within the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And then this is a specific piece of Title V known as Section 230. Yeah. So what what is it saying? You know, there's a lot of hubbubaloo and people on both sides are upset about it. And it's this section that maybe is worded a little vaguely um, to a non-legal person. But what it is, is that it's giving the, you know, companies who operate on the internet, both the two parts, which is a legal li- a legal shield from liability for what people post on their, uh, you know, on their websites, and then also the ability to censor content on their websites that users submit without without liability that they can be sued by the people. Just kind of think about how things on the internet can kind of generally work, you know, whether you agree with it or not. So Facebook can take down basically whatever it wants on its platform. And when Facebook takes something down, they won't be they won't be held accountable for taking something down. They'll they're you know, if if uh, you know, if Facebook decides to take down our old pizza of the month Facebook group <laughs> from high school, shout out to anybody who knows about that um, because they deem it offensive. We don't have any sort of legal framework under which to sue them to get it to come back up. We can kind of go through um, some private arbitration that Facebook sets up for itself like an appeals process but there is no real legal means to go about suing to get that back up but that that's the you know the kind of offensive offense of it the defense of Facebook is that like they can do moderation but then they're also inherently not reliable. So there are, I mean, this is the more, a more egregious example, but, you know, Facebook is sometimes blamed for the, uh, you know, the genocide of, well, not genocide. It, it, there's a lot of bit bad things going on in Myanmar, I believe, uh, where the Rohingya population is being, you know, like, round up and there's been violence and some people are calling it a genocide and all that stuff. I, I mean, I, I'm, I feel bad that I'm being as kind of flippant to this, but because it is a very real issue, but Facebook has often been a, a incited as a reason why the, uh, the issues went as bad and the violence got as bad as it did because they kind of let these Facebook groups fester and, you know, all these, uh, you know, escalations of hate go on on their platform. Now, is it bad that that it happened? Yes. 
Should Facebook have probably done something? Yes. Do they also have legal uh, uh, legal protection from being sued over that? Yes, generally within the United States. Um, you know, this this came, um, you know, as part of the early Internet as, you know, things were, you know, new and, you know, people were uh, shocked at the amount of shocking content that could be available to just anybody. And, you know, there are some people who take on the framework of publishers versus platforms. But the whole point of Section 230 is that there is not a distinction between publishers and platforms. Um, that is not a legal framework that is set up by the law. And and before I get into what conservatives and liberals both have beefs about this, Evan, do you have anything you want to say? Oh, no. I mean, everything you're saying is accurate. I've, uh, you know, I, I think that that's a good place to go is with the because because there is a tax on both sides. That yeah. Kind of deal with the different sections. Basically, Section 230, the two main things are you can't sue the platform for what ends up on the platform. And then you can't sue the platform for what gets removed from the platform of yours. Yeah, and the liberals are mad about one part of it, and the conservatives are mad about the second part of it. Yeah, so people who are generally more liberal, um, their disagreement with uh, Section 230 is that they believe that these internet companies should take on a greater responsibility for censoring bad extreme content that has real harms in people's lives. Um that they want it to be, you know, in the, you know, uh, Myanmar issue, they would want it to be able for the Rohingya uh, people to be able to take legal action against Facebook for facilitating hate speech and hate mongering to happen on their platform that ended up, you know, having very real consequences for those people. Where or even from the domestic front, there's maybe a desire to be able to have the ability to pass legislation that would get closer to holding Facebook accountable for fake news and election interference and the types of things that were concerns in the 2016 election. That right. is all stuff that's prohibited by Section 230 that some liberal activists are not happy with. Right. But then the uh, more conservative people are... Uh, their beef with Section 230 is the platform's near unlimited ability to shut down whatever content that they see fit. And the uh, it is believed, whether true or not, that uh, these platforms do hit jobs on conservatives and are way more likely to take them down than other people and what these commentators on the conservative side want is essentially to be able to legally sue facebook for taking down their content their page their posts their whatever because exactly in the the conservative world of the repeal of section 230 when milo yiannopoulos gets removed from twitter they want milo to be able to sue twitter yeah to get his account restored um, so 
<laughs> there are, and there are definitely, there are merits to both sides. I am more sympathetic to one than the other, but I can understand the merits of both sides. And, you know, it's also funny because, um, you know, conservatives say that, you know, Facebook takes down all their stuff. But it's like they, they also take a lot down a lot of like the more extreme left stuff, which doesn't really have a framework of people to um, support <laughs> like true anarchists, people trying to overthrow the state. You know, that stuff kind of gets taken down and washed away um, pretty easily. Whereas Ben Shapiro is upset that maybe one of his extreme, more extreme friends got had a post taken down or something like that. I don't know. Um, but it's it's also weird, like, you know, uh, the the platforms have been able to greatly use their algorithms to filter out any sort of jihadist activity on their platforms like they figured out basically how to crush isis without you know any bombs or you know troops on the ground by making it harder for them to communicate they can't like you know send out a tweet and then like you know reaches just you know the one guy who will be receptive to it in the middle of Nebraska and yeah, deplatforming you know, the recruitment material and all of that. Yeah. And they've been very, very, very successful and nobody would argue that, you know, they should stop doing that or most people wouldn't stop argue that they should stop doing that because it has been a greater good. But then, you know, the platforms have run into difficulty controlling for things that are a little bit more in your face here in the United States, like white supremacism, you know, Twitter came out and said that, you know, they tried to do essentially for white supremacism, what they did with jihadism on their platform. But what ended up happening was they would have also caught a few Republican elected officials in the United States in that net. And they're like, well, we can't do that um, based on their own belief of, you know, elected officials essentially getting to use the platform and then essentially getting to do what they want um, because they are elected officials. But regardless, so that's that's the two sides of the beef. Every once in a while, you'll hear someone come up and say, like, something vague about, like, well, they're acting as a publisher and they, you know, they're actually a platform. Which are they? And it's like, well, that's not a legal framework set out by Section 230. That is, that is not anything. I mean, the idea is like that one is like a publisher, like the New York Times, and the New York Times has broad editorial. Uh, you know, discretion, but then they can also face like legal consequences. Whereas a platform is like a uh, like a community board, where essentially the idea is that there is no moderation and anybody can do it. But then also every time a a platform comes up with the express purpose of having no censorship, all the extremists go there immediately yeah. because it's like, hey, we got a platform. 
we're being platformed like literally um <laughs> so that is the essence of section 230 i don't know if i really have a take um it's kind of this trade-off that kind of generally lets the internet exist like you know a, a minor form of how this could work is like what if what if YouTube was responsible for the comments in the comments section of videos? Because, you know, they allow people, to, you know, and there's even some sort of moderation of videos, you know, through uh, through what is advertised, you know, what is able to be advertised on and what is not. Um, but then, you know, what if they were responsible for someone saying something really anti-Semitic in their comment section? You know, that would be kind of weird to hold YouTube accountable for that. But then, you know, they should also have broad protections to be able to get rid of it. You know, it's it it's it's a trade off that has allowed the Internet to essentially exist for, you know, some broader views to be held or expressed. But then also, you know, sometimes having a broader uh, range of what can be expressed allows extremists and bad people to also express their views yeah i think that my take on it is that there definitely is some trade-off but in general i would not support the repeal of section 230 because i think then yeah it opens the door for people who want to promote or not even want to promote, but want to have their extremist or obscene views be amplified by a private company, they will have legal recourse then to try to establish that through a lawsuit, which to me is a little bit absurd. Because here's the thing that I think gets overlooked. If you want to use social media to... I don't know, say some bullshit like Richard Spencer, like white ethno state, whatever, something that's obviously stupid. Why do you need Twitter to do that? You don't have this unlimited right to hijack any platform that you want and use it to your own ends. Twitter is a private company that has to obey the laws of the United States, but they don't have to obey the whims of every user. And here we're actually seeing a market solution take over with the new app Parlay, which has emerged as a conservative alternative to Twitter, where people who feel like Twitter is censoring their conservative views, that they're not receptive to the dialogue and discourse that they want to have, now have this new platform with different rules, not no rules, but different rules about what type of content is accepted there. And that, I think, is probably the most authentic way to preserve internet freedom while also respecting the ability of platforms to make decisions about what type of content they host. Do I think Parlay is kind of dumb? Yeah, but it's a, someone who founded the company, had a mission for it, and they get to do that just as twitter gets to say we want to filter out this type of content and facebook says we're not going to allow this type of thing on our platform and so there's no law that says that if you think twitter isn't responsive to the message you want to put out that you have to use twitter there are alternative social media sites available and the potential to grow new ones anytime well and and basically every website with content 
has a spectrum of editorial oversight. So like take adequatelyinformed.com. I there is an editorial staff of Joe who <laughs> gatekeeps what goes on the website. Evan could be if the you know there was more, you know, if it was more involved. And he also is part of the editorial decisions um, of what goes on or not. But essentially it comes down to us and like even you listeners can't really get on on posting on our website. Um, you know, we're not no brands, no nothing. We make the decisions of what our website is and what our content is. But then, you know, you get a little bit looser, like, you know, there's like uh, like there are websites out there that are platforms for writers, but, um, you know, they have most anybody can get an article published, but, you know, there are some standards. So, like, I mean, if, if even back up a bit, you know, there's like the New York Times where they'll occasionally, you know, produce content from people outside of the New York Times on their opinion page. But then there are like websites like medium and like i remember from the, the college odyssey. days the odyssey where yeah. you know you can submit your content and most anybody's content will be able to will end up being published on the website but there is editorial decisions like you can't just like write a piece that says nazis are cool and they'll be like okay and then you get into and then if you skip a few then you get into like you know, Gab, which is like supposed to be a or I don't know if it is in the category of was a social media platform that, you know, essentially had no rules and, you know, people take over. So where we exist now with kind of our Twitters and Facebooks is that they exist in this. Like space in the spectrum, kind of in between the Odyssey and like gab where there is broad ability to say whatever you want with very very minimal editing and you know uh, some people will say censorship but you know in this case it'd be more moderation and you know sometimes it can be arbitrary because such of a high volume um, that there is and you know should there be more consistency on the moderation and should some priorities be changed yeah sure but you have broad ability to say whatever you want without the discretion of the platform coming in but they still can come in with that discretion yeah and like you said, there are definitely trade-offs and issues with the current system, but I think that we, we can work to solve those issues either by creating new social media platforms that cater to different audiences or exerting pressure on Facebook to fight fake news more vigorously that are, are workable within the framework of Section 230 that don't expose us to the problems that repealing section 230 will have like really when trump tweets about trying to repeal section 230 he wants it so that twitter won't delete he wants to be able to sue twitter when it you know it seems like almost inevitably they'll delete his account after he's done being president yeah like 
he he wants to be able to have a course of legal action to get that back but there just isn't because in the end of the day it's still a private company that's doing this stuff now you can get into some very there is a level of this conversation that almost that doesn't really happen but could be like valid like you know there is this idea of a common carrier within the utility space where the idea is that the utility has to give like give their services no matter what and they don't get to choose what services that it gets you know used for or what uses it has so like electricity company has to sell you electricity whether it's going to be used for steel manufacturing or keeping the lights on in a sex shop like they don't get to decide that they don't want the lights on in the sex shop um, because of whatever reason or decide that you know they really dislike that this donut shop opened up down the street so they're just not going to give power to them like they don't have the ability to do that and the phone companies don't have the ability to decide what uh you know what content you know they have broad legal shield so nobody can sue the phone company for the mafia making a phone call on you know one of their phones to order a hit because they're just the common carrier they don't have any say on the content that is used that their service is used for they just have to provide the service to no matter who again you know they if the the sex shop wants to have a phone in it they have to give it to them you know even if they they don't believe in it so we get into the conversation of like how does this work for these new platforms whereas you know we could almost see a twitter or a facebook or whatever being like a kind of utility in a way a platform utility that you know we have broad agreement that people have like it quasi rights to use if they deign to use the service <laughs> um where you know, certain levels of censorship may not be acceptable, but I don't think any, not too many people I have seen have been using that framework to talk about it. And it is inherently different, but, you know, that's a whole But yeah, that idea, the idea is out there. Yeah, I floated it. We're getting it out there. You know, uh, you're picturing it and we're talking about it, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's what we have on Section 230. Do you have anything else you want to add, Evan? Yeah, just the summary. So for uh, for those who are curious, Alex, and I'm sure others, Section 230 is the thing that lets the Internet be the Internet. You you can't sue someone for what they allow on their site. You can't sue someone for what they take down from their site. And in my opinion, repealing it would create just this avalanche of lawsuits that would fundamentally change how we use the internet. And there are better ways to solve the problems than just repealing the section entirely. Yeah. Like, yeah, (laughs) things, things would change a lot, uh, pretty rapidly. Um, I'm going to take you to internet court. Um, 
All right, two two competing theme songs there for Internet Court. So you guys tell us which one you yeah, like more. Yeah, as as they were heard at the exact same moment. Yes, they are yep. probably inaudible. Yep. <laughs> so Evan, we got a uh, we got a wrap up subject, right? We do because adequately informed, one of our favorite shows is Big Mouth, and it came back just this Friday with season four. And of course, in the preceding two days, Joe and I have each watched all of it. And it's, so it's only like it. five hours of content, you know? <laughs> yeah, actually, you're right. Very modest by modern standards. Um, but yeah, so Big Mouth season four. What did you think of it, Joe? We have not discussed this yet, so I'm genuinely yeah. interested to hear what he thinks. Wait, let's let's do this pre-spoilers because it did just come out and I'm sure there are people who... We, we will do a big markation of spoilerdom. Um, in the pre-spoiler times, I would like to say I enjoyed it. It was good. It was more of what I liked in the show. And I, you know, I thought once again that, you know, some of the themes that they bring up are good and, you know, not discussed a whole lot directly. And is able to go through those subjects and bring light to them in a funny manner that I find funny. I know not everybody I loved does. It. I, I thought it was so hilarious. I was laughing out loud a bunch watching it. I think it might be pound for pound the funniest season since season one. Although not to say that there's really been an appreciable quality dip. I think Big Mouth has been remarkably consistent throughout its four seasons. But... This was just so full of referential callbacks, and they were also not afraid to get really grungy with some of that humor. Um, it, it just really worked for me. I thought it was a fantastic season of television. Yeah. Um, and there, and I, you know, this may be, uh, this is still pre spoilers, but it, it feels like uh, there wasn't the traditional, like, one bad episode this season yeah i mean i would have to kind of think but there was no real time where i was like ugh i wish this episode like i remember there was like i remember there was like the planned parenthood episode in like season two and yeah which is odd because that's the episode that got them nominated for an emmy but i'm with you i thought that one was kind of ham-fisted oh i mean um, they totally admitted it at the end like And like, I remember, I forget which episode it was in season one, but there was another one where it's season one. It's that one where, where they go to New York. It just doesn't work for me. And the ghost of Duke Ellington sings that song. You never lost a New York city. It just, it, it, it doesn't justify its runtime. I don't think that's the one in season one for me. There were, mine was a different one, but I can't, I can't remember which episode it is. Maybe because I probably skip over it when I am watching. <laughs> But anyway, very good season. Now, if we want to go to spoilers. Whoop, 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 whoop. Spoiling. What's our what's our spoiler music? Uh, I, me. Can just it be going, the Howard Dean scream? No. Got to save that for the good times. Um, it's all the good times. Man, the, the, I liked I liked camp. Camp was good time. Yeah, camp was interesting. I wouldn't say that I connected with it on a personal level because I never went to like a summer camp or anything. But two notes. One, just the the, the scenarios they created were very funny, even if you don't relate to it. I still thought those episodes were great. And two, I kind of liked how 
they did it for like an arc, but then they still took him back to school. You know, yeah. they didn't say like, this is the camp season. That would have been overkill. Yeah. Um. So yeah, no, it worked. It worked for me. It worked really well. Um. There, there's really good Andrew and Nick relationship development where they, they're definitely being dicks to each other because, you know, Sometimes you're a dick to your friend. It just it, it's kind of a part yeah. of having relationships with people is that there's going to be times where you don't gel and you don't get along and you're not on the same wavelength. But they they come back together and they still preserve the core of that friendship. That's another thing I thought was good about this season in the characters was that. Over the last couple of, you know, in season one, we established the kind of the core group and then seasons two and three sort of see those relationships fracture in very organic ways that are related to the stresses of growing up and going through changes. But in this season, we really get a sense of the group coming back together by the end and attempting to reaffirm their friendships, even in the face of all the bullshit that they're going through in a way that really worked for me. Yeah, it was nice. Um, I also loved the like Bonnie arc. <laughs> like she like this, you know, the one of the hormone monsters who are like supposedly supposed to be static characters, Oh, bon- Connie? Connie, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I'm mad I was with. Like, Who is Bonnie? <laughs> I, was so conf- I thought I missed something big in the show. You see, this is my thing with characters and shows. I get like 80% if I like remember it. And <laughs> Connie, Bonnie, close enough. Anyway, um, yeah, where she has like a small arc of like, yeah, I'm, I'm being hormone monsters for both Nick and Jess. And it's not working out because it's conflicting interests. Yeah. And like I have to and I'm going to put my foot down and assert my rights in this relationship. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think they're they're really starting to understand what they have in that Connie character. Maya Rudolph this past year won the Emmy for Outstanding VoiceOver Performance for her work as Connie on Big Mouth. And as far as I'm concerned, she can win that award every year as long as Big Mouth stays in production. Like, they they shoehorn so in a, an opportunity for her to say bubble bath again. Exactly. <laughs> like, they're just really, they, they're steering into it now. They're like, oh shit, all the memes are her saying bubble bath. We'll, we'll put her in a bubble bath again. But it works so well. Yeah. <laughs> or like um, the, the, the classic season one reference where she goes, fuck you, coffee table. And then in this season, fuck you, water skis. It's good. It's so good. It's just genius yeah. oh man yeah um oh man so yeah I, I thought the references were so funny yeah man i had never thought of it before but the uh the j low lola um hitching is uh it makes so much sense they're just so perfect for each other i couldn't stand it when he was just licking the mud off of her feet though. oh like, no oh, me neither God. me neither i was turning like, my stomach like he's gonna get worms like this is <laughs> like like this isn't just disgusting this is like bad this is like like not too many things trigger the disgust emotion in me and that that did oh yeah it was bad 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 um but beyond the humor, I think, and remember, we're in the spoilers part, so if, you, if you've made it this far and you still want to watch Big Mouth, for, for the love of all that's good, stop now. Um, but anyway, there, there's kind of two, I think, overarching themes 
of the the season that were really poignant to me number one is its depiction of mental health so obviously in the previous seasons jesse has been introduced to the depression kitty and this year pretty much all the kids get visited by tito the anxiety mosquito and beyond just kind of showing it and validating it season four of big mouth gives concrete strategies on how to fend off some of the worst symptoms of these problems and again it doesn't try to say that it's easily cured you know they're, they're still uh, supportive of the idea of people going to therapy when they deal with this type of stuff which is very affirming but you know they, they offer the strategy of just breathing in and out in four second intervals to quell the worst types of anxiety and they offer the character of the gratitude voiced by zach galifianakis to give kids and adult viewers alike a model of the strategy of remembering what you're grateful for to fend off some of the darkest thoughts that you may have. And I, I thought it worked really well in a way that sort of has this edifying characteristic without verging into a ham-fisted didactic type of after-school special. Yeah. And then the other theme that I think was really interesting is that as these friendships fracture and recoalesce, so too do each of the individual characters themselves, where basically each character is sort of dealing with different versions of themselves, most notably Missy, who's sort of reconciling her racial identity with all of her other types of identities. We know that Nick is sort of having this split personality between Nick and then Nick Star, and all of the, the characters have sort of all the different voices in their heads talking to them in the future versions of themselves. And by the end, I think what we're supposed to learn is that all of these different versions of ourselves, all of them are us. And maybe part of growing up and maturing is not trying to pretend to be just one version of ourselves, but effectively meshing all of those parts of ourselves to create a functioning ego. And I think that's a pretty sophisticated take from a, a show that also has a dramatization of blue balls by having a hospital ward of literal blue balls who eventually explode. Right. Um, so yeah, I thought that that was really nice the way that they kind of took it with the Missy storyline and then also the Nick storyline to broaden it out and kind of make a bigger statement on how we negotiate our own identities. Well, like I've really enjoyed the Missy arc because like not only, I mean, this season she had the reckoning with, you know, how race intersects with her, you know, her identity. But I mean, it's basic. Like she's had moved on from like a very early on stage when what like someone described her outfit as like a unisex minion and <laughs> like and like it, it seems like from that moment on she has like been trying to find herself outside of the like unisex bland and offensive minion who's like you know she you know, in season three, I believe, you know, she she under, you know, really took on her identity as a woman, um, mm -hmm. you know, started to interface with that. And now, you know, in this next season, you know, she's starting to interface with her identity as a black woman. Um, 
and you know the things that are entailed with that and i also just got to say like i remember when like the first season i watched um you know i remember liking it because i remember it kind of it felt like it validated a lot of things that i felt in puberty and when i was that age and all that kind of stuff and you know and the first season was more heavily geared towards the boys um or at least that's what i saw I mean, there was definitely stuff that wasn't just the boys, but it, it felt like it was more geared toward that. But I have been enjoying watching, um, you know, the arcs that come up with like Missy and Jess, where these are perspectives and ideas that I have not ever had like a framework to have empathy with, like, or, you know, like a concrete kind of like discernible trade-offs or you know what's going on in those situations because you know a lot of girls lives or you know the things that they go through have seemed foreign to me and I can you know admit that and to see kind of the inner monologue of those types of things happening whether these you know those representations are true or not it's been nice to see a perspective like that um, yeah, they've me. done a really nice job of broadening the scope as the show has gone on. I don't know if it would have survived otherwise, at least at the same level of quality. Of course, they kind of self-reference that, don't they, with the Cafeteria Girls episode where Nick and Andrew start dating these seventh grade girls when they're in eighth grade and then they they're confused because they're like this is our show it's big mouth and then the girls are like no this is our show cafeteria (laughs) girls right and then and then you know they have to realize hey we are not the only main characters out there in the world everyone's a main character of their own story and we have to treat people accordingly especially women yeah so i have in this season, like a lot of the stuff with with Jess, I've really enjoyed um, seeing her arc, you know, seeing some of the things that I've seen. But, you know, you know, you know, the like the depression and anxiety stuff coming on. But then also like, you know, just seeing how that stuff can materialize from a different set of circumstances. And like it seems valid. And I'm like, oh, now I have a kind of a framework to understand this stuff so yeah yeah enjoy it so in the spirit of the gratitude i want to end by saying i'm grateful for this conversation it's been very enjoyable oh that's what you said in that text yeah (laughs) you know it's all coming full circle sometimes i just see words and (laughs) um you don't read I, the words. You just say, oh, okay, this is a response from Evan moving on. This, this is just a set <laughs> of words. This is maybe some reference I don't get. And maybe, you know, it, it's not enough to just bring up on its own. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> I think that's our uh, episode. Uh, we thank you all for listening. As always, hopefully you made it to this point. Hopefully we will be returning to our every other week. Uh, content we took a bit of a hiatus last you know two weeks ago for the break and i was also on call at work so that was tough to record an episode during those (laughs) conditions um yeah thanks for listening we'd like to thank anthony hish for the music as always we'd like to thank nick kroll for big mouth and uh yeah thank you to 
Mike and Alex for the, the listener questions. We always yes. appreciate them. Yes, if you haven't told, we need help with content. <laughs> like, all, like all projects, we had lots of ideas in the beginning. And as you go on and say the things you have to say, there isn't as much to say. So, anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been... Adequately informed.